This is from the True Dharma'ai Quran collection. When the thief breaks in, the main case. Once Zen master Kingji Hongjin was asked by a monk, what happens when you are poor and a thief breaks in? Kingji said, the thief cannot take away everything. The monk said, why can't the thief take everything away? And Kingji said, because the thief is in the family. The monk said, if the thief is in the family, how can it be that he turns out to be a thief? Kingji said, if there's no help from the inside, an outsider couldn't do a thing. And the monk said, if the thief is caught, who will get the reward? Kingji said, there's never been such a thing as a reward. And the monk kept pressing. Then hard work will result in no accomplishment? And Kingji said, it's not that there is no accomplishment. It's just that it does not last. The monk said, why does the accomplishment not last? Kingji said, don't you see what I mean? Gaining a peaceful society is accomplished by a general, but it cannot be maintained by a general. The verse. Distinguishing enlightenment, dismantling delusion. The bandit leads the sheriff's brigade. Accomplishment, before it is exhausted, is just an extra thumb. So last Sunday, we concluded our spring sashin was quite an extraordinary event for those who were there. But now looking at it through the rearview mirror, it may quickly become a distant memory of a profound experience that seems difficult to merge with our everyday life. Like water and oil, we may see both, but they don't mingle. Why does it feel this way? And it does. For those of you, those of us who have been to Sishin's many times before, we know what happens. So what is it that we get in touch with during a Sishin? And what gets in the way when we try to access that during our everyday activities? Having the privilege to hold Shishin's at Daibosatsu Monastery is an incredible opportunity that offers us optimal conditions to observe our minds and intimately connect with the deeper aspect of our being. The stunning beauty of the remote location, the particular design of the monastery, and the structure of a Shishin, the highly structured. All of it naturally invites the practitioner to set aside the perpetual storyline and observe oneself directly through seeing, accepting, and working with the churning mind. We gradually quell the gravitational pull of our thoughts and emotions, some more, some less, I know, and are more able to focus the attention on the constant experience of just being. Of course, we each experience this on a different level. And even individually, the depth of the experience fluctuates. But most importantly, we all get in touch with some, some sense of equanimity, regardless of the busyness of our mind, our personal karma, and the current personal circumstances we find ourselves in. However noisy or heavy our personal baggage is, still, still, regardless, somehow we get 
we're able to get a sense of underlying constant essence that is calming and deeply supportive, unconditionally. It's there. Even if you only see it in glimpses, it's there. There's somebody on Zoom trying to get in. Can you please allow them? Thank you. So from that ground, from that ground of equanimity, we sense each other's energy and connect with our surroundings. And students are of, often deeply moved by the beauty of the natural surroundings around the monastery and they describe it with awe and appreciation. Although it's not the first time we see a lake surrounded by forest on a mountain. Somehow, somehow, the experience is different up there. And it is so because we are in touch with the ground of our being. So when we are in touch with that ground, the conceptual gap between our senses and reality shrinks. And we communicate with our surroundings in a direct and unified way. It's a different kind of seeing, different kind of hearing. In other words, the gap between the subject and the object drops and we experience the multiple facets of our own beauty. It's not the forest. It's you. You look at the forest and you're reminded of your own immense beauty beneath the chatter of the mind, beneath the clinging to a self, beneath, under all the commotion that's going on in the mind about producing and protecting a self. All the egoic behavior that we are so hooked on. Beneath all that, there is already the preciousness of the forest within you. It's not there more than here. And then you see your own beauty in everything you encounter and everyone you meet. It's an incredible experience of homecoming. That's why it feels so good. That's why being tired at Sishin is not such a big deal. Because there's something far greater than that. There's something far greater than me. The me that I'm so overprotective of. Whether I love it or hate it, it doesn't matter, right? Whether I think I'm great or I think I'm terrible, it's the same me that I have to see through. So that's up at Sashin, and then Sashin ends. And a week or two later, we find ourselves getting sucked back in to the hectic demands of everyday life. Dealing with other beings that push our buttons and experience the same old thought patterns that drive us mad. You may remember the line, the last line from uh, the introduction of the Teisho last Saturday. Kicking the wheel of potential into motion, how can you particularly travel down the one road? The one road. You get in touch with it. How do you travel? How do you function here today? From one, as one. So right here, in the midst of this powerful vortex of our everyday life and the madness of our world, this is where the rubber meets the road and this is where our practice matters most. 
How do we stay in touch with unity and keep alive? Keep that alive on a momentary basis. Now, it's true, of course, that Sishin Daibosatsu is conducive for creating fertile ground to expand our awareness and get in touch with the ground of our being. But if the capacity to experience this was not already inherent within us, we would not be able to experience it. Right? How could you experience something that you don't have the capacity to experience? It doesn't make sense. If you cannot be in awe, you will not be in awe wherever you are. It doesn't matter what, what happens. It's in you, not in the place. So the fact that we may find it elusive while dealing with everyday life challenges doesn't mean it's not available now. Of course, it's just that we get distracted by our awareness or what our awareness comes in touch with. When this happens, we shift back to experiencing reality with a gap between self and other and self and the environment. We shift from a unified mind. In a unified mind, you experience the forest as you. You see the beauty of the forest as the beauty of your own being because it's unified. So the shift is from a unified mind to a divided mind that is dominated by an idea of a separated and unchanging self, which is expressed and affirmed in the way we speak or the way we think. We often say, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. I am bogged down by too many responsibilities. I am irritated. I like this, I dislike that. I can't handle the current madness of our world. Oh, the chaos of my own mind, which I cannot stand. There is a common thread. Things change. It goes up, it goes down. It is nice, it is not so nice. It smells good, it smells bad. But the eye is always there as not changing, as arguing, as being stubborn. I, me, constantly. That's the common thread. So we do acknowledge life as dynamic and changing. Of course, we know that. Yet through the way we think and speak of it, we create the illusion of a static and separated self. We speak of it again and again and we think it. I don't like this. Who are we saying it to? The I is communicating with itself. Because when it's not, the illusion starts to disintegrate. It has to speak of itself, affirm itself again and again and again through language, through thought and speech. That's how it stays alive. How else something that is not there will be there? And this gives rise to the notion that I am acting upon life or that life is acting upon me. And that cuts off that sense of unity between what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, what I'm tasting and touching, right? Between the being and what's arising at that moment. Now, of course, the fact that we call it illusion doesn't mean it doesn't feel real. It feels very real. So following conventional thought, there is a general belief that our state of being is dependent on external conditions. But those who practice for a while know very well that the fluctuations in our state of being have more to do with how we react to each moment. 
and whether or not we are aligned with life. When aligned, life feels different, totally different. When disconnected, it becomes unbearable. We become unbearable for ourselves. It becomes very heavy. You know, whether it's reactions to people and circumstances or reactions to our own thoughts, emotions, and physical sensations, each moment can be met with a unified mind or a divided mind. And this is what we need to acknowledge so we can transform our actions from harmful to beneficial. This is what's called transformation at the base. And the base means acknowledging everything. We often talk about Buddha nature as the unifying essence that flows through everything, which is an essential aspect of Buddhist teachings, of course. But Kodo Sawaki Roshi also speaks of thief nature as an internal energy that acts in the background and creating a sense of small and fearful self that acts in alienated, stingy, and protective ways. So to make a connection between harmful or beneficial actions, we can say that alignment with Buddha nature manifests as a unified mind, and alignment with thief nature manifests as divided mind. So the monk in this koan is inquiring about the internal workings of the thief nature. Here's the thief. And his question is pointing at the thieving divided mind and the unifying mind that is rooted in Buddha nature. So the monk asked, what happens when you are poor and the thief breaks in? And King Ji says, the thief cannot take away everything. And the footnote says, if it's really a destitute family, then there is nothing to take away. Now the term poverty in spiritual practice is quite different than the conventional meaning we give it when we think of it. Typically, poverty is based on the duality of having and lacking. And since we are deeply identified with this duality, we assign a positive association to having and a negative association to lacking. So naturally, poverty is not a condition we aspire to. In spiritual practice, however, poverty means poor of self. So we can say we're all very rich because we have a very big self we walk around with. So it means poor of self or selflessness, which Jesus referred to as the meek. The common notion of equating happiness or contentment with accumulation and grasping is born out of our identification with that fixed self. And since this self is fictitious, no matter how much we accumulate, how tightly possessive we become about what we accumulate, it never leads to lasting sense of contentment. More essentially, we keep trying to fill a bottomless pit which doesn't work. And it leaves us with a lingering sense of discontent and a general yearning for more. How can we satisfy an illusion this is why it doesn't work for anyone. I always, it doesn't matter how much I protect myself, I always will feel I can do some more on that front. Because these couple of people don't know who I am yet. I'm going to tell them who I am. It shows up in so many subtle ways. 
in so many subtle ways. You don't even notice it. When you do it, you don't even notice it. You know, the practice has a lot to do with look inside and stay still. Don't look around. Don't look for things to verify you that way. Or look for opportunities to assert you. Because this is how you feed it. Whatever it is you're given, take it. Appreciate it. Be. Just go back to being. Looking around in Sashin is one of the ways we maintain the self, the ego. When we just practice and quell that and stay with our being, we realize how petty we are. And how quickly we come back to wanting to assert our opinion and wanting others to hear us. We think we are growing, but we're actually shrinking. And again, it never works. So the work of yesterday on that front is gone today. You have to do it again and again and again and again. And it's exhausting. I think we all know that. This is the classic hungry ghost syndrome, right? We talk about it often. Getting what we think we lack only perpetuates the sense of lack. If you get one person says you're great, is that enough? Two, three, ten, hundred. Will that be enough? Entire country, will that be enough? We can't feed an illusion. Or we can't expect the illusion to be satisfied. Because there is nothing there. And in a way, I think this is how we can prove ourse to ourselves that there is nothing there. Because we just look at our own lives. We look at the past decades that you've been trying to do it, and you realize it never worked. There's your proof. There's your proof. No matter what you've done, you still feel this way about yourself. And it's not because you haven't done enough. It's because you have done too much believing that there is something there to feed. It's actually very clear. When we stop running around, sit down, look at it, it's actually very clear. It doesn't mean that clarity produces the next moment as free. But it is very clear in terms of what we have to do. And this is not limited to <coughs> filling the bottomless pit only with material possessions. We can be equally possessive of and identified with the level of our education, our intellect, our job title, relationship, Parenting, self-image, our looks, anything, anything will do for that. And potentially, anything can become a source of a fixed self and lead us to constriction of the heart and misalignment with life. Anything can do it. Also, anything can be a gateway or portal into realization, into unity. It's not the thing. And the more misaligned we are with life, the more fearful, fearful and grasping we become. And from within this gap, the thief nature or grasping nature arises. This is why the footnote says that when we are truly poor of a self, there is no possessiveness. And therefore, nothing can be taken away. If you're really poor, you got nothing to defend. You're not holding on to anything. There's nothing there. So when you are truly nothing, you are everything. So you can't lose anything. 
Only when you think you're someone, then yeah, that someone will be very possessive and protective, of course. The monk said, why can't the thief take everything away? And the footnote says, you are really the only one who knows where things are hidden. Who is creating it? Who can dismantle? Who can stop creating? Who is it about anyway? Right? practice, all koans, everything we chant, all of it is about you. Isn't that amazing? Think about it, right? All this amazing tradition, all of it was created for and maintained for you. How could we not appreciate it? It's not about the tradition. It's about you here, today, now, so you can free yourself from that, so you can actually live your life as you need to. It's amazing. So why can't the thief take everything away? And King Ji says, because the thief is in the family. The thief is in the family. How do you recognize it? <laughs> this practice can appear to be very demanding. It is asking us to examine the patterns of our behavior, the behavior we have come to rely on, and to mess with the sense of security, comfort, familiarity we derive from them. In other words, to take a sledgehammer to the floor we stand on and crack it open and realize that you don't need it. You are plenty supported. Practice asking us to cultivate an innate ability to be grounded in reality, and it is innate. So it's asking us to recognize it and then cultivate it. And not to be swayed by or become fixated on the ups and downs of life not to be so impulsively reactive to what we encounter, and again, internally or externally, and to remain internally even while dealing with the inevitable turmoil of the world, of our lives. The fact that there is turmoil doesn't mean it's wrong. There is turmoil. It's the nature of it. So is this too much to ask of ourselves? I mean, we can say the practice is demanding, but how could it be too much to ask of ourselves to look at how we are trapped, how we trap ourselves to, to stop doing it and to, sl to slowly start to move towards a different way of being? Do we, do we interpret non-reactivity as becoming cold and detached, right? To say the practice is asking us to be non-reactive. How do we see being non-reactive? What is our connotation or interpretation of that? Zen often uses the, the image of frozen or cold, coldness, as a way to realization. Why is that? Is it to be disconnected from life? Or is it just to show us how hot we get about things? Hot-blooded through our reactivities. One moment we're okay, the next moment, hey, why are you doing this? How can you do it to me? It's not why you're doing it, because if they, if they do it to someone else, what the hell with that? How can you do it to me? I don't have time for you. Maybe they do, over there. If you bother them, well, it's their problem. It's not why you're doing it, it's why you're doing it to me. 
you go order something, right? And you get the different order. You go to your car, you realize they messed up the order. You're pissed off. Would you be as pissed off if they messed up the other guy's order? Of course not. Of course not. We have so much teachings on a daily momentary basis, right in front of our eyes, right with every interaction. We are taught the, the Buddha Dharma. But we go right back to the same old reactivities, the same old patterns. And that's what we have to recognize or come, get in touch with. So the practice of stillness is the remedy. Because we grow when we are still. We grow when we are not, when we are non-reactive, we grow when we shut up for a bit. It's not bad, it's good for everyone. It's within the fertile ground of our thinking mind that we create the perception of a reality that keeps clashing with what we encounter. So if we're not quiet, we can see that. And that gives rise to the illusion that what is happening should not be happening. It doesn't come from the outside. We resist, we argue, and we demand of reality to conform to the perception we have created of it. The fixed perception. Right? You should behave this way. The day should be like that. Life should be like that. Well, I should be like that. But when you look at it, you can see that our perception of reality is based on shaky parameters fixed, shaky parameters, which are born from the combination of our limited senses, right? The senses, of course, are limited, what they can perceive, our conditioning, and our individual karma. And based on this unreliable system, what we think is happening is quite detached from what is really happening. So we call it a cocoon, right? That's what that means. When we place the attention on the way we meet situations, the contents of the situation begins to lose its power over us. And we can work with it in ways that are much more effective, produ productive, and caring. It is a constant work in progress, of course, and we often, and often we, we do fall on our face. We do get stuck even when we try, even when we are earnestly working on it. We still make a mess. We still go back to old habits. But it's the only way we can learn to embody the practice in our everyday life in the most intimate, personal, and relevant way. Right? We're not trying to superimpose a practice on somebody's life. What we're doing is looking at our own life, at our own thoughts, at our own patterns, and using the practice to shed light on that, rather than use the practice to cover up what we need to work with. This is called spiritual bypassing when we do that. It doesn't work. You can look like a great practitioner. Don't move. Do everything perfectly and be a mess at the same time. We can even hide behind that. We can adjust if needed. <clears throat> the Buddha spoke with his son Rahula about being grounded and non-reactive and he said, Rahula, develop a mind that is like the four great elements. Because if you do this, pleasant and unpleasant sensory impressions that have arisen and taken hold of the mind will not persist. Just as, as when people throw feces, urine, spittle, 
pus or blood on the earth or in the water, in fire or the air, the earth, the water, the fire or the air, are not troubled, worried, or disturbed. So too, develop a mind that is like the four great elements. We are the four great elements. We are the forest. The forest doesn't mind, right? When a tree falls, even earthquake, you think the forest is disturbed, complaining, feeling bad about itself? It is us. Buddhism is like a fearless and unbiased reporter that is not influenced by any opinion. It says it as it is. It has the guts to say it as it is. And in doing so, it is telling us about the many ways we get trapped and the ways we can find liberation. In the simple practice of Zazen, we observe the workings of the mind. We encounter our reactive patterns and we can see how by holding on to created perceptions, we end up depriving ourselves of reality. So as we say, in broad daylight, we steal from ourselves. The thief is in the family. The thief is you. So is the forest. And... King Shi said that thief is in the family. The footnote says, parental commitment knows no limits. So our awareness is like a loving parent that will keep caring and setting boundaries despite all the issues and complications the child creates. Right? It could get very messy. The love is not in question. You don't send your neighbor to your your kid to the neighbors. I've had enough of you. So everything that arises in us, we need to treat it like, like our own child. As annoying as it is, as destructive as it can be. Meet it with love, meet it with care. But don't let it take over, because it will. If you give the child the amount of chocolate they want, you'll pay a high price. Momentarily, it feels good. They get quiet. But we know what the next moment holds. So the monk says, if the thief is in the family, how can it be that he turns out to be a thief? It's a good question. King Ji says, if there's no help from the inside, an outsider couldn't do anything. And the footnote says, a stranger wouldn't know his way around the house. So if there's no help from the inside, an outsider cannot do anything. Now that is freedom. It is actually saying... There is freedom available, attainable now. But we have to look. When somebody criticizes or blames you, when somebody cuts you off on the road, when a co-worker gets, gets a promotion ahead of you, when you get misunderstood, when you're misunderstood by someone, or, or when expected circumstances in life cause, unexpected, sorry, cause great challenges, we may experience an inner reactivity and a sense of contraction, but we acknowledge this as a natural response and do not go along with our perceptions or create a self out of or story out of it. We may realize that the thievery, the thievery of our equanimity is an internal process. This is where it happens at those moments or split seconds. We have to become aware. Here is when I start stealing from myself. Because if we're not aware of it, well, I'm not doing it. I was at peace until you showed up. 
until you said this. Or until my mind started to go in this thinking pattern, right? I was at peace. And you interrupted it. Is this true? A stranger would not know his way around the house. So there is that revelation. But then, to continue from there along with this koan, how do we, how do we view the revelation that comes from seeing through the workings of our, or the propensities, harmful propensities of our mind? Are those, or do we see those who are blinded by their perceptions, do they get punished? Or those who open up the eye, do they get rewarded? In other words, are we seeing this in the same dualistic mind that we see everything else? Because we can do the same with practice. And this is what, that's what this monk's, is, that's what he's thinking, and this is why he's asking, if the thief is caught, who will get the reward? So that's on his mind. Because there's still this sense of duality. That sounds great. How do I get there? What do I get when I get there? And then King Xi says, there's never been such a thing as a reward. And the footnote says, don't you see? There is no payoff. There is just a road ahead. But obviously, if there is still a gap, there is something or someone that wants to gain something. I just realized something. What do I get for it? How many people know I realized? Right? If I realize something and nobody hears about it, well, then it's not that worthy. I didn't gain anything. So the monk said, to that, well, then hard work will result in no accomplishment? Why should I bother doing all this? And Kingji said, it's not that there's no accomplishment. Of course, there is that. Right? We do go deeper and deeper. We do realize. But he's saying it's just that it does not last. So you went to Sashin, maybe you've had some realization, some moments of equanimity, equality, feeling the forest as you or whatever it is you experienced. A week or two later, what happens, right? It doesn't last. And the footnote says, let it go and get on with your life. That's how it lasts. By letting it go. Get on with your life. Keep practicing. The hell with yesterday's realization. It's useless today. Because again, otherwise, I'm walking around carrying something. And then I'm going to be burdened by that. Not so much by that as much as by the identification with that. Because I'm the one who realized. I'm the one who had the experience. Now, we want acknowledgement for everything we do. Otherwise, efforts don't seem to justify. Don't seem to be justified. But any extra, any extra can become a burden and a hindrance. As Suzuki says, burn yourself completely through the actions, like a good bonfire that leaves nothing behind. Every day, every moment, we burn the self to what was. So what is becomes the, the new self, the living reality of the self, the unknown self. What we burn is the known, which actually essentially all we're doing is we're just, we're burning what is not there.
So we walk without leaving traces. Now we're dealing with, and we have to acknowledge again and again, we're dealing with persistent habits that, some of it which have been passed on from generation to generation, some were accumulated during our own lives. So it's very important that we understand the challenges of working with these habits and practice with full honesty so we can recognize, recognize our self-deception. Since we are the buyers and we are the sellers, we know exactly how to package excuses in the most convincing way and compromise on practicing or not practicing. So part-time practice or not. I don't have time to practice. Who is saying that? That in you that knows that the practice is its annihilation. And I've said it many times. You know, we've had people who were very, very committed and have had deep realizations to different degrees and are no longer around. And I get to hear it all. I hear it. I see people in Dogosan. And I see. You got it. You see it. A day later, a week later, gone. It's, a good, it's good for us to see that and to learn from that. Because it doesn't last, right? The only thing that lasts is the illusion. So we have to again and again practice. Practice and practice. There is, let it go and look at the road ahead. And at the end of this dialogue, the monk asks, why does the accomplishment not last? And King Ji says, don't you see what I mean? Gaining a peaceful society is accomplished by a general, but it cannot be maintained by a general. And the footnote says, if the general is still around, how could it be called a peaceful society? Right? So, so we, the practice is very tight. Right? It is demanding. It is asking of us to be very disciplined. Because this is how we quell all these harmful streams. That's the only way to quell them. Because if we don't do that, they're taking over. But then we have to know how to assimilate. We have to know how to relax. We can't live like that, right? So we sit and we don't move for 30, 40, 50 minutes a day, however long you sit. But then you got to move. You got to hug. You got to smile. You got to talk. You got to take care of things. If you're frozen, if you're going to be uptight about it, it's not going to work, right? If there is a general still around, how could it be called a peaceful society? So we have to know, as I was saying in Sishin, how to keep it tight but not be uptight. Now, when freedom of self is attained, do you think that there is a conqueror and a defeated? What was conquered? Who was defeated? It's true that we, have, we need to have the courage of a warrior. So there is the, the usage of the, of the word general is actually very fitting because we have to have that courage that is ready to fearlessly go to battle, to look at what comes up, right? To work with our persistent habits. But the battle is not for the purpose of eradicating an enemy. Although it may seem like that when we deal with the harmful habits. So we have to know how to maintain the resolve, strong practice, committed, disciplined practice, but not for the practice. The practice does not need us to do that. The Dharma doesn't need that. The tradition is actually not asking us to do that. Although we may get caught up in thinking that this is what it's about. There is correct and there's incorrect. And there are those who are on the correct side and those who are incorrect side and I'm here. You're over there. 
that is stifling with the nature. So we recognize it and we allow it to roam free. So I'd like to finish with this a short uh, uh, description, <coughs> excuse me, uh, about uh, the difference between Dogen and Keizan. This is from Professor uh, Matsunaga, Japanese professor from last century. <coughs> he said, as regard to basic thought on Buddhism and faith in the Buddha, Dogen and Keizan were the same. And Dogen was, of course, before Keizan. But they differed in personality and environment. Dogen was rigorous and stern, but Keizan was mild and gentle. Generally, we need two kinds of activities in religion or spiritual practice. On one hand, we must go ahead and deepen our religious experience. On the other hand, we must lead others to the depth of our experience. We must let them enjoy the knowledge of the law of the Buddha and the practice of Zen. Keizan was the right person to lead others to this joy. He was the friend of the common people. He met everyone with warm heart and shared the joy of others. These are the characteristics of true person of Zen. In Soto Zen, we as, Soto Zen was established by the stern fatherly character of Dogen and the compassionate motherly character of Keizan. The Soto sect was founded by Dogen but consolidated by Keizan. The profound philosophy of the Soto Zen sect was built up by Dogen and clearly explained by Keizan. Dogen educated few disciples, Keizan profited the multitude. In the Soto sect, the two patriarchs are compared to the two wheels of a cart. For if one is lacking, the other will, no, will be of no use to fulfilling its purpose. Very, very well put. And this is, this is how we need to practice. We have to know how to be, keep it tight, and we have to know how to loosen up. And we have to know when to apply which one of those. Otherwise, we will create again and again a self, either from the loosening up or from the tightening up. It's very important. So, that's our challenge, to keep it alive again and again on a daily basis, to realize, to recognize, and to actualize, or to kick the wheel of potential into motion. Thank you.